Junction Live, taking thought leadership off the page and into the studio with some of the sharpest minds in affiliate marketing. Hi, everyone. I'm Nicole Ron, and I'm head of global marketing, product marketing, and business systems here at CJ Affiliate. My team puts on our annual performance marketing conference, CJU. Last year, we had some incredible sessions led by amazing speakers, but the most inspiring session of last year's event is the one that I'm sharing with you today, Conversations for Change. In this session, CJ was joined by leaders from across the digital industry, from companies such as Google, Groupon, Magic Links, and our own parent company, Publicis Group, to address the need for greater diversity, equity, and inclusion. While the format of today's episode may be different, I'm excited to share the words of wisdom and inspiration of these incredible individuals on topics as critical as this one. At CJ, this is a conversation we've been having at length, and we've been focused on initiating real change. I hope this episode encourages you to do the same within your own spheres of influence, whether in your organization, your team, or even in your personal life. Please enjoy. Thank you for joining us for the Conversations for Change, a very timely and important discussion with a few individuals who are truly leading change within our industry. Today, our moderator, Kenya Feinberg, VP of Corporate Development, will be, make, will be speaking rather with our panelists about ways affiliate marketing can make strides towards greater diversity, equity, and inclusion. So without further ado, I'll hand you over to Kenya. Take it away. Thank you so much, Jason. And hello, everyone. Welcome to the final stretch at CJU20. Um, we miss the in-person connection and the beautiful beaches of Santa Barbara and the opportunity to connect with you know, new friends, old friends. But we hope that you've been able to learn something very valuable today in our virtual format. I am Kenya Feinberg. I am Vice President of Corporate Development at CJ Affiliate. I serve on the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee at CJ Affiliate, as well as the Publicist Media Inclusion Council. I have to say that I'm super excited about our next 50 minutes together, and I'm proud, I am honored to belong to an organization that has truly been honest with itself during this time in our country. CJ has been unafraid to ask, you know, who are we? What do we value? What can we be doing better? And what are the resources that we need to truly drive positive change as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion? CJU20 was a terrific opportunity to broaden that conversation by inviting an esteemed panel of passionate thought leaders to share their perspectives on the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. We hope you leave this session inspired. We hope that you leave it curious to learn more and hopefully with at least one insightful takeaway that you can apply in your organization or in your personal life. So I'd like to take a moment now to introduce our panelists. We have Amy Catalano. Amy leads the global partner marketing organization at Google Cloud. In this role, she sits on the marketing leadership team and leads joint marketing efforts across all types of partnerships. She's been in technology marketing for 20 years, working for small, medium, and large companies. Amy's been um, leading the women's ERG organization and two organizations, actually, and has, she's also co-founded diversity and inclusion efforts at her previous company, Pure Storage. 
We also are joined today by Corey Flournoy. Corey, Corey brings more than 30 years of experience, and he is a recognized leader in diversity and inclusion programming, strategy development, executive coaching, and employee engagement for multiple national corporations, nonprofits, and educational institutions. He is Groupon's global head of inclusion and diversity, where he oversees the company's inclusion and diversity team and works to sustain a culture of inclusion, integrity, and respect at Groupon's offices around the world. Since 1995, Corey has been a founding partner, consultant, and trainer for Creative Outreach Consulting LLC, and is a certified professional diversity coach through Coach Diversity Institute. We also have an honor of having Renetta McCann on our panel today. She has been recognized as one of the leading innovators and most influential executives in the advertising, marketing, and media industries with a global reputation for not only building brands, but also building the organizations and the leadership to sustain them. As Chief Inclusion Experience Officer at Publicis Group, she works to drive inclusion at all levels of the organization with an emphasis on ensuring that the company's clients are benefiting from the many strategic advantages that diverse teams deliver. And finally, Brian Mirabal. Brian leads creative strategy at Magic Links. He advises thousands of global brands and influencers on compelling data-backed campaign solutions. He also leads Magic Link's DE&I team, including hosting a weekly Instagram live series that gives voice and reach to Black, Indigenous, people of color leaders within the influencer community. So lately, there have been a lot of conversations about racial injustice. The recent injustices of George Floyd, Ahmed Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, and then the international movement towards equality, those incidents really should encourage us all to look inwardly at our own conscious and unconscious biases. We are at a point where eyes and ears are wide open, minds and hearts are also open right now. And CJ honestly wants to continue to be a part of the conversation, but we also want to be a part of the solution for improving the lives of the CJ team members, but also improving the affiliate industry at large. So that being said, I'd like to start this conversation today by asking our panel, how has thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion how has it been changed or how has it been impacted since these recent tragedies have happened? I'd like to hear your perspective um, with folks paying so much attention to this topic just to kick off the conversation. So if we could open that question up, I'd like to hear from Renetta first if we could, and then I'd like to open it up to the other panelists to respond. Um, thank you, Kenya and the CJ organization for having me here today. Um, what I'll bring is kind of a long view to your first question here, because I think in many ways there are bunch of things that haven't changed, right? So the fight for equality and justice, um, the complexity of the situation and what we need to work towards. Um, what I will say is that the deaths of Ahmad 
Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd in particular with racial injustice and then all the people who've suffered from COVID-19. I think one of the clearest things that's indicated as changes within organizations, we thought DEI was just um, a function to to have to support our talent while they were internal. Um, What I think has happened with all the inequality and injustice injustice we've seen in 2020 is that corporations are being called more clearly into the public square with the recognition that their very own employees are also humans out in the world and that those humans come into the workspace with expectations around participation, um, expectations around support and psychological safety. And so I think the role of the corporation in coming to the table and being, you know, definitely an ally, but maybe even a co-conspirator in this work has been heightened. Excellent. Thank you for sharing. Um, could we get perhaps Brian to, to chime in on that? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you, Kenny and CJ as well for having me. Uh, such an honor. Uh, you know, at Magic Links, it, it really was a catalyst of a lot of change. The the week that George Floyd was murdered, I texted my CEO at six o'clock in the morning, and we very quickly decided on what an action plan was going to look like. Um, and realizing that that action really needed to be tied to a commitment to change rather than just putting out a statement. So a lot kind of uh, happened sort of just organically from there. We stopped all marketing and really focused and took a pause to first check in on our team, um, hearing first and foremost from the uh, you know black coworkers at Magic Leaks about what that experience has been like, you know, really experiencing a different world than some of the, our other coworkers. And so, those conversations were happening internally. Externally, our CEO put out quite a strong open letter that we did send to uh, our entire ecosystem of partners. So, you know, we knew that having such a strong position was a risk and that there were likely going to be some responses that weren't super positive, but it was important to us to not only act quickly, but also to make a long-term commitment to change. Great. Thank you. I think also it's um, important perhaps that we level set just a little bit more before we dig deeper um, into the conversation. And I'd like to do that by hearing from each of the panelists. Um, we can actually start um, with Amy on the next question, which is, Amy, talk a little bit about defining or, or sharing diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think that these words are sometimes used um, interchangeably. I think that they are all very distinct. So if you would, if you could just kind of level set by defining or sharing what diversity, equity, and inclusion are uh, to you? Sure, absolutely. So when we think about diversity, it's really like the differences each of us possess, right? Whether it's race, culture, gender, sexual orientation, age, and and so on. And and I think it's really important um, that we attract, develop, progress, retain all of the different underrepresented groups and all of the groups in the different levels um, within Google and within our workforce. Um, When we think about equity, this is about access, right? This is like high outcomes of access, opportunities, and successes for all individuals, regardless of any social or cultural factor. And I would say this also includes recognizing the advantages and barriers um, that require the need for potentially some differentiated strategies to bring people to parity, right? And then inclusion, obviously like this is just, how do we create a workplace where everyone 
every employee feels welcome, respected, supported, and valued. Um, and, and how do we all help and create conditions for everyone to thrive? That's kind of the, the three definitions that I think about when I think of DEI. Great. Corey? I guess similar to Amy. Yeah, diversity is, yeah, the representation of race, ethnicity, gender, disability, sexual orientation, gender identity, all those different things that companies and organizations should have, but not because of numbers, but yeah. because of what does bringing these individuals to the table do for the company? So what perspective, what way, what different ways do you, you solve problems when you have a diversity of people who have different experiences and different ways of seeing the world in the workplace working together? So that's diversity from my, from my standpoint, is having people in the room with different perspectives. The inclusion piece is really important because there are organizations that do strive to get a diversity of numbers, but if the environment and culture is not one that people can be themselves, they could, they could, they feel included in conversations, they feel included in decisions, then they tend to leave <laughs> or they tend to have a very bad experience. And I've worked for places like that. I've been that person. And so inclusion means, have you created space where you do care to actually hear from the people that you have who are diverse, who work in that workplace and not just in lower levels, but in all levels of the organization and across departments. The equity piece is the, is the difficult part because um, that is the part that often companies get uncomfortable with. Um, when you think about fair treatment and access and opportunity, there seems to always be this, that there is sometimes this narrative that, well, by giving someone an opportunity that, you know, quote unquote, is different than someone else, I'm giving them an advantage or I'm lessening, lessening the playing field, all those kind of things. Equity rec is recognizing that there is people in our society who have not had the same opportunities, not had the same privileges, and have not had the same advantages, and we recognize that and we're going to do something about it. So equity is how you do, what are you doing to change that dynamic um, so that people like, you know, who are women, people of color, LGBTQ, people with disabilities, that those things don't become barriers for them to succeed. Any ideas or anything you can share, Corey, about maybe specific tangible examples of how you've been able to see equity played out? actionable in a way that that's very will a real that perhaps folks can um, glean from. Um, could you share any specific examples that you've seen in your current role, previous role, um, anywhere along the way? Sure. So when I came into Groupon two years ago uh, as their first global head, one of the first things I did was wanted to see the numbers, see the diversity, and quickly recognize, A, that we didn't have any um, ethnic diversity at the C-suite level. Um, there wasn't a great amount of gender diversity in our tech space. And even worse is when you look at the pipeline going down a few steps, there still wasn't that, you know, very much diversity there. And so the equity piece was wondering, well, what do we need to do different that is going to help us to start getting diverse talent um, in the room at that higher level? And so um, we created something called the Great Leadership Program, which was Groupon's resource for emerging and inspiring talent. But it was a high profile program geared towards that mid-level um, people of color and women who are in the organization, they're doing well, but they're having, they're having a challenge getting to the next step. And so we did a year-long high, high intense program where these individuals, we chose 15 for the first year, um, got executive coaches, um, they received mentorship from VPs and above, even the COO was a mentor. Um, we brought in internal and external speakers. In fact, Renetta was one, she spoke at our graduation for our, our first cohort. But it was all about investing in these individuals to give them access and opportunity that they would not have gotten just by being employees at Groupon. And so that's how you start to change dynamics. A third of those individuals got promoted even in that first year of the cohort. And 
another important piece was including the managers in the training because you can give resources to individuals who are marginalized, but if the managers do not know how to be sponsored and give opportunities, bring people into the room that they normally wouldn't have had that opportunity, then you can still get that barrier to actually succeeding or getting hired in the organization. Great. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that. The next question, I'd really like to uh, kind of um, open up the question with a response from Renetta, and that is, Renetta, could you please share with us why DE&I is important um, in the industry, in the marketing industry, in the digital space specifically, and some consequences for not prioritizing DE&I um, within, within our industries? Um, so one, I'll, I'll admit, right, right now I'm a generalist, so I don't, I probably don't know the digital space as well as an Amy or a Brian or a Corey, but here's what I'll say from an industry perspective, what we all know is that the, the demographics of the United States, the demographics of the consumer populations that brands and marketers and companies are trying to connect with those demographics are changing. And what we are seeing is that by 2030, a significant portion of that desirable demo, if you will, 18 to 30, 18 to 34 will be, um, people of diverse or multicultural or racial, racially different backgrounds. And quite frankly, this topic takes on critical importance because if we're, what we're talking about is the development of messaging and then content that resonates with that consumer base and also carries relevance so that they'll connect with those brands. It's critical that in, at least in my mind, that you have the kind of insights or cultural intelligence that fuels that, and that you also have on your teams the perspectives that help you see um, and get to those insights and the ahas, and certainly things that will help you with what may be inevitable missteps in communication. So I think really what's driving this for our industry is our consumer base. And I think what will hold digital back in particular is because it's delivered as close to one-on-one -on -one as possible. You want to be knowing more and more every day about that one-on-one -on -one and then tailoring those messages to those people. And I find it hard to do that in a multicultural world if a diversity of perspectives and people and insights aren't present. Excellent. Um, Let's see. Maybe we could have Brian touch on that a little bit more. Consequences for not prioritizing DNI within our with our industry. Brian, could you share with us, please? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, Magic Links is all about the world of digital content creators, specifically video influencers. So, when we really look at our entire network, it is consisted of an incredibly diverse group of individuals to begin with. And so, for us, it's really important to make sure that we are supporting these individuals to share their stories in a way that is authentic to their true background. Um, now, we take that a step further when we are also working on the brand side and trying to bridge the gap between what that unique experience looks like for an influencer and then taking that to the brand, where the brand is saying, you know, this is what our KPIs are, this is what we want our brand to look like. And sometimes that doesn't necessarily hit the, the mark with what the content creator would like to create. Similar to what Renetta said, we know that when we're looking at our overall demographics of who our content reaches, it's very diverse. And it's just getting even more and more diverse as each year goes by. So for us, it's really taking a step back 
and educating our brands first and foremost about what diversity, equity, and inclusion needs to look like within casted campaigns, engaging with content creators and how that representation of your brand through the um, content of an individual, like where, where's that going to live? And so let's give an example. Um, we're working with a hair care brand right now and they come to us and they say they want to have a diverse group of influencers. So, you know, that, that that's when it's important that on our team that we do have uh, black employees that understand that that black hair care is extremely different than hair care for other races. It just is. And so little things like that that we would have missed and to help us to really educate the brand in terms of what that timeline should look like. We're not looking at a 90 day rollout anymore. We're looking at closer to maybe four to five months because of the cycles of washing hair. There's just little things that we see. Um, and it really is, it's a conversation that we continue to have because I think this year we're seeing brands, all brands sort of wanted to, you know, um, double down on their diversity and inclusion strategies. And so what that actually looks like in practice is, is um, a lot of education. That's a great segue into the next question that I, I want to ask. And um, Corey, I'll get you to kick this off. I think sometimes there can be this um, idea or even like a misperception that the commitment to diversity sometimes conflicts with the commitment to excellence. Like we have to lower standards to achieve or accommodate diversity. Um, can you um, talk about that relationship between diversity and excellence and how that um, often plays out? Am I being? There we go. I had it on oh, There we go. No worries. So, so first, I'm going to deal with the fact that I think sometimes there's a misconception. Yeah. Right, that you have to lower the bar um, to get diversity in the room at certain levels. Um, and this is a conversation I've had with the senior leadership at, at Groupon. And as a, to my consulting business, I've now worked with probably five or six other companies and having similar conversations about this question, right? The thought, uh, you know, we want diversity. We, we, we have this position open, but, you know, the candidates just don't match up. They don't have the same years of experience. And do you lessen? Do you, do you make an exception for them just so we, for the sake of diversity? And I like to turn the question back around on people like that, particularly cisgender, white, heterosexual men who are, who are in those leadership positions of leadership and say, well, at some point in your career, <laughs> did you get a job um, that you didn't necessarily have the experience for but someone gave you the opportunity and chance to believe that you would grow into the role. In almost every case, the answer is yes. Uh, most people I know who are CEO or some chief, this, some, a lot of times it's their first time in that, that level of job. But for some reason in our society, there, there seems to be this belief that if you're a certain person, that you, you'll grow into the role and that you'll, 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 you know, you'll meet the demand and we'll work with you to get there. But when it comes to a person of color or woman, we often met with the, well, you know, we're going to have to pass you on this position and maybe we can revisit it in a year. And, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. So we got to change this, change this mindset, right? Um, I think it, it goes with first looking at job descriptions. I, I think sometimes the requirements are so specific that they put in job descriptions. You have to run a $5 billion PL. You've had to have this tech that when you finish making that job description, there are only white men who have that level of experience to get the job. So by virtue of how you created the job description, you've already guaranteed that you're not going to get diversity. And then you're shocked when you don't find people who have all that experience. So I think it's a time to take a step back and think about what true qualities, what skill set do you need, A, to be successful in the role? And also, if the person doesn't have all of it, are there other people in the, within the organization who can help supplement it in those areas where it may not be that person's strength? So sort of like being a president of the United States, 
you are not expected to be an expert or should not be an expert on, on military health, home, like that's why you have a team of people who have certain expertise you bring to the table. And so we got to change this narrative that if you're a person of color or woman, you're expected to be Superman or Superwoman, super black person, have everything ready to go from day one and, and, and start being realistic about what we need and what we can supplement. Could we get perhaps Renetta to chime in on that? I think it also ties in very nicely to perhaps what I've been hearing lately in the media is about like, you know, oh, it's a pipeline thing. And you know, we, we, we don't have the pipeline to kind of facilitate uh, the diversity goals that perhaps we've set out for ourselves. Uh, Renetta, can you speak a little bit about how uh, that perhaps ties into um, the question that I, I just asked about excellence and diversity and there does not necessarily have to be a compromise in order to meet those goals? Yeah, and so um, I agree with everything that Corey said, and what I will add on is actually, and I wish I could quote his name, but I read a columnist in the Financial Times who basically says the advice that most people with portfolios receive is to diversify that portfolio. So why, if we can diversify our portfolios, if you have a mix of long-term assets, different kind of assets, why does it seem so hard to do that in the organizational structure? And I think part of it is back to who's setting the standards, how are those standards being set? Um, what I, one of the things that I will say is that um, this whole conversation around um, pipeline is, is actually, I would just call it um, in Hitchcock terms, it's a MacGuffin. It's something that we like to talk about that doesn't really exist or move the story forward. Um, and I think companies get trapped in trying to fill the entry part of it and not pulling people through the pipeline in order to do that. Um, so I, I, I just really think we have to take a step back, understand what kind of skills we're looking for, what kind of outcomes we're looking for, and then begin to bring in people who can advance that thinking take some risk on them, see where it goes, and then set new models instead of relying on job descriptions that were written 10 years ago. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'd like to shift the conversation a little bit, and um, I'd like to throw this question over to Amy, if I could. And Amy, I'd, I'd like to ask if you could share with us or describe a program, an activity, a strategy um, in your current role or even in previous roles. Like, what are some easy to replicate programs um, that you've seen work well? Um, if you could provide a, an example, a real life example of a DE&I related effort that has perhaps helped to drive the organization, um, provide some, some progress along those lines. Sure, I can actually think of two and very relevant to the conversation we're having right now on bringing the right talent into the company, um, but in the spirit of job descriptions. So actually one of the things that we did is we took a historical look at data from over 6,000 job postings in an 18 month wow. period. And we analyze like word count ranges um, and language and basically how this is affecting like who was applying. It was interesting. So one of our findings was that when a job qualification summary is more than 54 words, women applicants decrease dramatically. So as a result, like we created this tool to basically help mitigate bias. And so now every job description gets run through this tool. And so we analyze the text as well as the word count and remove words or phrases that could potentially bias a candidate against applying. And actually from a results standpoint, 
um, postings that went through this tool, we actually saw an 11% increase in applications from women. And so that was like one program that really showed like meaningful thought into like what is actually written in the job description can get you to the outcome that, that we're looking for. And it's not just the job description. And I'm always really big on this in terms of think about the interview panel that you set up for candidates and then also the interview questions, right? How do we make sure that they're consistent? They, they're very um, competent, competency-based interviews based, you know, every single time. And then I'd say the second one is there was a lot of this thought around like culture fit versus culture ad when you bring people in. So there's all this like, oh, you know, how do we think about candidates? Um, and we look to hire people with different backgrounds with a whole wide range of experiences. And so um, we want to focus on how a candidate could like add to the Google's culture, not just like how do they fit into what it looks like right now. And so we've actually had a culture ad training um, with, you know, 90% of um, people who take this training um, basically said that it's completely inspired them on how they think about a candidate when they interview and then how they would be more of a culture ad versus, versus a culture fit into the company. That's fantastic, especially the idea of adding to the culture complimenting supplementing the culture not necessarily just fitting in with like this is the way it is today are you a good fit for what we have going on but sometimes adding something different is exactly what an organization might need so thank you for sharing that um brian are there any things that you can share with us today um, examples related to de and i um, that have really helped to move the needle within your current organization or even previous yeah, absolutely. So um, one thing that was very quick moving right after we had taken our, our first initial stance on Black Lives Matter this year was the development of a series that's now ongoing called Tea Time. Um, now, Tea Time is a weekly series that I host on the Magic Wings Instagram, where we are basically giving the floor to different Black thought leaders in our community to talk about whatever they want to talk about. It's really not too structured. And, I, and our whole strategy was really let's grow and develop policies by asking and learning. So realizing that we don't have all of the answers, we don't know everything. And, and it, you know, the best way for us to really combat that is to first take a step back and open it up and learn from different stories and backgrounds. Um, so the first that actually started with one uh, digital content creator, who's a beauty creator based in Texas, she actually reached out to our CEO directly um, thanking him for taking a strong stance on Black Lives Matter. And she was my first Tea Time guest. From there, it sort of evolved. We actually, uh, very recently, I uh, had another guest who had responded to another one of our marketing sends that we sent out uh, that, was, that was supposed to be a Father's Day focused messaging, but instead we titled it Daddy Changed the World. Uh, and it was really, it was actually sent on the day that would have been Breonna Taylor's 27th birthday. And so our messaging was really focused on that. Um, from there, a um, this amazing, oh my gosh, she's the best, but one of my tea time guests, she uh, is a self-starter, started her own influencer agency that represents exclusively black talent. Um, and we had a great conversation last week, actually, about what sort of, you know, inherent biases she sees within the, within her industry and what she's experienced. And she said that um, at one point she was asked if her black influencers would convert the same in terms of sales metrics as uh, other white influencers. And so that was an interesting thing for us and a great example of us 
seeing, well, one, that's just an example of inherent racism just sort of happening in real time. Um, but what could we learn from that? So we took that and then we actually went back to our full uh, casted influencer world and looked to see, okay, let's break down the numbers. Like we learned from someone that this is a question, so let's look. And so we uh, did a, a full audit of all influencers that we have casted in 2020. And in fact, found that our Black influencers have the highest conversion rate of any of the uh, racial groups that we work with. So, um, you know, interesting findings. But again, we wouldn't never, we would never have gone to that point to even ask those questions had we not opened up the Florida conversation. Wow, that's impactful and certainly interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, we understand that the topic of diversity, equity, inclusion, it's not always an easy topic, you know. Um, we understand that DE&I efforts um, sometimes are received warmly and positively, and sometimes there's a negativity. There might be backlash or there may be resistance. Um, could I get one of you panelists, I'll let you just kind of jump in and whoever wants to answer can answer it. But if you did receive any um, kind of negativity or resistance or pushback regarding the efforts of DE&I, how did you handle that? How did you overcome that? Um, in your current role, in a, in a past role, or, or even in your own lives, your own personal lives? So I'll jump in and say, yes. <laughs> so uh, uh, when Groupon made our public statement about Black Lives Matter and our, and our efforts to support Black-owned businesses and anything else, um, we received um, some negative responses from merchants, some customers, and probably some co some employees who may feel the same way. They just did not vocalize the viewpoint. Um, and so I think one is being stiff at it. And whatever your position is as a company, you can't back down when you get challenged, right? Um, so, I, you know, I had to do some training with internal. Like, we didn't, we, there were questions where can we just get rid of the merchant if they don't like what we're doing? Or could we just say thank you for the feedback? But I think it's an opportunity for education. Um, so when you get pushback, um, it is an opportunity uh, to provide education to those who want it. So, you know, there are people who are, you know, you know Black Lives Matter, the movement, you know, it's, it, it's a, they're connected to Atifa and they're just, a, you know, you know, they, all these, all this misinformation about these groups are. And so I, I'm good for like sending a person a link to the actual website and give them a little background about certain things that people think what they hear in the media, what they hear on certain newslet, newslet uh, outlets on social media. How do you help educate people? This is a great opportunity in this space um, to connect people to the right source of information. Um, and what I find is in, in those situations where we receive emails or uh, even on social media when people push back, all lives matter, everything else, you provide people with fact. Um, sometimes it's a debate. Most times, more times than not, I get no response, which means if people have read what I've said, they possibly have gone to it, they have a different perspective, and rather than engage in any further dialogue, they just leave it alone. Um, but I do think we're in, a, we're in a time where you can't back down if you take a position. Um, I think companies to cower away from it, it, it speaks about it. It, it shows that, you know, Black Lives Matter and stuff was uh, a slogan. <laughs> it was something you posted, and it's, and it's a movement. And so part of a movement means you have to be committed to doing the work and, in some cases, doing education. So I'll give a more one-to-one -one example. So I was um, in the agency being filmed for um, an internal video that was going to play about the topic of diversity and inclusion. So asserting my commitment to the topic as well as asserting the agency's commitment. And after the film, you know, I guess stopped rolling, if you will, after that session was over, the person who was filming, um, a person 
pretty much of my generation, but a, a white man looked at me and he's, he looks at me directly because we're really close. And he goes, you know, I don't believe any of that. I don't believe or agree with what you just said. And I looked at him and I said, well, I understand. And you know what, if you want to have a coffee, we can talk about that. Because what I find is that part of what drives the backlash is that people believe that they will now be excluded or removed or punished or lose something of value to them. And essentially, I tend to be more of a promoter of the abundance story, which is that there is more to be gained by embracing inclusion and figuring out how narratives are correct are connected, but also how, you know, the presence of narratives can expand the world and expand our insights, intelligence, our ability to go to market, et cetera. And so I think it's just that recognition at the individual level that people are very concerned about what is it that I have to lose in this? And that's part of the backlash. Wow. That's very powerful. Thank you. Um, I wanted to kind of rewind for just a moment. Um, in the previous question, Amy gave a really great example of, you know, what I would like to couch as accountability in the form of measurement. Um, can anybody else share um, examples of how we hold organizations accountable for moving the needle and making progress in the form of how we're actually able to measure. So Amy gave the example of you know, resumes and, and increasing that you know, by 11% as it relates to um, having more women, right? So I wanted to kind of step back a moment and see if you guys could share any further examples on what we may be able to take away today to go, okay, yes, there is work to be done. Sure, there are conversations that we need to have, but how do we know how we're doing? So if you guys could give any examples, and I'd like to hear from, from anybody that wants to chime in, um, Brian, perhaps you could kick it off to say, how do we measure ourselves and hold ourselves accountable to be able to look back quarter over quarter, year over year? I mean, we are in marketing and without measurement, like what are we really truly doing? So as it relates to the efforts around diversity and inclusion, equity, how do we measure ourselves? How do we hold ourselves accountable? Oh yeah. Great, great question, Kenya. So uh, a few things we one now have a, a minimum non-white uh, inclusion for all cast campaigns. So we are measuring ourselves against that benchmark. We are measuring ourselves against a lot of benchmarks really within our uh, overall network to make sure that we are, you know, back to the conversation of equity, helping our uh, BIPOC talent and content creators to really get to the same level where they have the same amount of opportunity as that of their white counterparts, particularly when it comes to brand sponsorships. So that's one uh, measurement point for us in terms of um, our kind of how we interact with the external world. We also now have within our sales offerings, a fully dedicated diversity package where that is the focus of our campaign. And the intention there is to really help to educate our external brand partners on, on what that sort of campaign should look like. Um, and so, you know, we will be looking quarter over quarter at that, how many brands actually go for that. You know, that's a new thing for us. So we're not really sure if that's going to be successful. We, you know, at this stage, we are trying things. We are committed to making a change and we realize that not every activity that we engage with engaging is going to have the best of results, but it's important for us to at least test first and try it out and make sure that, you know, what we want, 
how we want to be perceived and the commitment that we want to make is something that is both impactful and measurable. Corey? Uh, yeah, for Groupon, we have um, KPIs or key performance indicators in several areas. So for us in the talent space, um, we have a certain percentage of the diverse workforce we plan to retain um, and develop over, you know, over the next year. So for that, for that, it looks like, you know, we are providing some special training for managers to know how to have conversations with people who have different cultural backgrounds. Um, we are also recognizing, and this is, and I, this is true for myself, definitely my, my career. We're doing a job shadow program because it's interesting that people of color and women often don't even think about positions at a higher level because it's just, it's not even, it wasn't even something for consideration. To believe that you could be part of the C-suite, a lot of people and women of color just has never even entered into the thought process that they could do it. And so we're creating a job shadowing program where we plan to make certain that a percentage of our employees have the opportunity to get exposure to understand what's really entail in these, in these roles. And, and this may be a role you may not be in for 10 to 15 years, but if you can start to see what it's about now, you can start preparing your career to get there. So that's what we're doing for talent. Uh, for culture, uh, we've set a goal to have a percentage of our entire employee base engaged in the actual activities and things we're doing surrounding diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, so we just, for instance, finished a um, global book club on white fragility as anti-racism um, book club that the CEO personally led. Um, we had 40 different small group discussions. We had two global discussions about the book. So we're engaging people in the difficult conversations that most people don't feel comfortable engaging in. Um, so we have a KPI for that and other things we want to get, ways we want to get employees engaged. And then we have one for the business. Uh, we're in a unique situation, like most of us is, we want to know, we're setting KPIs for what percentage or number of our merchants, um, Black-owned businesses, LGBTQ-owned businesses, um, Latin-owned businesses that we want to make sure that we support and help them to survive and thrive through COVID. Um, minority-owned businesses are struggling much more than other businesses. All businesses are, are struggling, but minority-owned businesses are struggling at a, higher, at a higher rate. And so Groupon, we're now on the hook for what are we going to do to help provide additional resources, marketing support, connecting to other resources to help them survive. So. We have specific numbers and across the board that um, not just diversity and inclusion, my team are doing, but people across business units are also accountable for helping make an, help us meet those goals. So that's the other part is that, um, and Renetta's in the situation as well. These goals are not about those of us who work in DEI space. It's about the company and people across departments have to also be a part of us reaching these goals. Otherwise, we can't make it happen. Absolutely. I agree with Corey. Um, one aspect of measurement that I'll point out is that a number of um, agencies within Pulisys Group um, participate as members of the Inclusive 100, which is an initiative attached to an organization called She Runs It. Um, but what all of us agree to do is um, send in data to the Inclusion Index which is managed by diversity best practices. I've got a whole lot of acronyms here, right? Um, but what it is, is a 350 question survey that tracks um, demographics, it tracks pipeline, it tracks um, learning and development programs, it tracks CEO activities and organizational activities. And so one of the things we benefit from, so you can have internal KPIs, but it's also measuring yourself against exemplars in your industry wow. and those outside. Because one of the things we find by participating in a handful of these kind of industries as as progress happens, you have to move your own practices to keep up, right? It's not as if you can just 
have an unconscious bias training. You probably have to have unconscious bias training plus something for managers, plus something for leaders, right? But as the standard moves in the business industry, you need to be measuring yourself against that standard and putting in place more and different programs to help you keep up um, in this arena. Love that. I think um, one of the questions that you kind of jogged by um, making that statement is, it's important to be able to measure, yes. Um, I think that this effort and energy is is great when it's top down, but also when it's bottom up and it's both ends of organizations working um, at the same time and together. Um, but I wanted to ask, um, and Renetta, since you're already kind of on a roll here, how best should leaders collect and respond to employee feedback um, on how diversity and inclusion really impact them? What have you seen work well um, in, in ways that, that leaders within organizations, leaders of teams, collect that information and, and collect that feedback from the folks that are on the the ground working for them. I know it's not always easy to have the conversations with your managers. So what can you tell leaders? What can you tell managers on how to connect with their employees? Just, you know, on a day-to-day, making it something that's comfortable where it doesn't necessarily have to be super formulaic or super formal, um, but how leaders can, can be able to hear from their people and collect that feedback um, from them. What have you seen work well? So I'm going to give one best practice and then leave room for Amy, Brian, and Corey to weigh in. And that is, um, as a CEO or a top leader, you just have to go talk to people. Mm. You have to meet them. You want it unfiltered. Um, At one point in my career, I can figure out which years I was a CEO. And CEO, the information stream in is highly filtered. People are telling you what sort of they want you to hear. And it's all, let's assume the best of intent, right? But it's highly filtered. And in, on this topic, you have to go talk to people, especially around inclusion, and ask them, what's your experiences? What are your experiences? What are some of the barriers you face? What does real life look f- like for you and our organization? And be willing to accept their answers, Mm -hmm. to convey to them power or voice or agency to communicate what real life looks like. Amy or Brian? Sure, I can comment. We also do the the annual survey and it's spot on to what Renetta said, it's, it's listening. And so with each of my leaders that work for me, I do a form, like I sit down and we discuss and you just listen to what everybody has to say. The other thing that I do that I find is is really interesting is not everybody's comfortable to speak up in the group forum. And so I was, uh, you know, it takes a month or two to actually have enough time to go through this, but you know, I do skip level one-on-one. So I have one-on-one conversations with everybody throughout my organization and really understand how are they feeling? What do they need to be successful? Um, and then to Renetta's point, like that's part of it, which is listening. It's just as important to show that we're acting on feedback. So we really care about like, what is the action plan that we're building against what we've heard and making sure that we share that out and report out against that. Corey or Brian, would you guys like to perhaps share um, what is that? collection of feedback look like? How do you make way and give room for the employees to feel um, like they can share? So one of the things I would say is, I mean, yeah, right. Surveys are, uh, you know, we do a Glenn survey every month where we read every comment that comes in from employees. 
I think when it comes to particularly between the manager and um, say so subordinate or the person who reports to the manager, um, there's something called the ACE model um, that I've used a couple of times. Uh, well, actually, I've used with um, people. Uh, what we found is that um, when it comes to diversity of individuals between the relationship between supervisor and someone who reports to them, there's also a different difference of perspective sometimes of how we, we think one person's doing. So uh, I don't know if any of you ever in your career have really thought like in your job, in your job, you were killing it. You thought you were doing fantastic work. You were, you know, you're doing what you're doing. You, you thought you were getting promoted. And then we have a conversation with your supervisor. Your supervisor has a very different impression of how you thought you were doing versus where you're, and, and that should not happen at the evaluation process, right? And so there's been some research actually has proven that the greater the cultural differences between you and your supervisor, actually the greater likelihood of you having a different perception of how you're doing. Wow. And so this ACE model is a really non-conflict way of, there's six different categories and I can't tell you what they all are, but they, they all start with an A, C, or E, where you feel, uh, you as a, a direct report, you fill out this thing and so does your boss. And then you sit down and have a conversation, see where, they're, where, where you match and where you don't match and have a conversation about why there's a difference in perception. Um, and if you can start to have those kind of conversations more and more, um, A, again, from a, from a manager standpoint, you begin to see how you see the world differently, but also it gives an opportunity for the person who reports to you to give you some feedback as to why we have a difference in perception. You know, so, you know, the person who is reporting may feel like, I don't have, you know, I'm doing the best I can with the opportunities that you give me, whereas your manager is like, well, why are you not pushing for more? Well, you don't give me, so it, it really creates a framework to have those difficult conversations that often you don't realize you're not having until it's time to do an evaluation and by then it's too late. Wow. That sounds like a great tool for, for inclusion, for sure. Well, that's exactly what it is mostly used for. It's using this space of inclusion. The areas of ability, ambitious, com, ambition, commitment, connection, emotional intelligence, and executive presence. And so you, as a direct report, rate yourself, then your manager, and then you see whether it's alignment and when it's not aligned. And that's a great way. And those are the, those are the six areas also that's shown to be needed to move up. Yeah. <laughs> into positions of leadership. Agreed. Um, I think we have time for just one more question. And so I'd like to open it up to get a, a response um, from each of you um, during our time uh, together. And that question is, what inspires you or what are you most proud of as it relates to your diversity, equity, and inclusion work as you've been on this path in your current roles or previous? What inspires you to do this work? Okay, I'll, I'll go. Um, so, you know, I, I constantly talk to my team and others that, you know, we have a lot of work to do in driving a business forward, but I wholeheartedly believe like this is the most important work that we do every day. Um, and so for me, I think what inspires me is I have a daughter um, and I would love to see a world where she doesn't face a lot of the unconscious biases that I did, especially earlier in my career. And I feel like we all have such an opportunity to drive change for future generations. And I think a lot of people see the vision, they know it's possible. Um, and so that's what kind of makes me think about, okay, what are the percentages of time I'm gonna spend and makes me want to lean in and do more work here? Cause this is the stuff that's really gonna make a difference when it comes to humans and well-being. So what I'll say, what what inspires me to do this work is that fundamentally, I think it's about um, human potential realized and human progress achieved. 
And there is nothing more rewarding for me that I've seen, and I've been around for a while, than finding someone's potential and especially somebody who has some sort of difference. They came from the wrong school or they took a different career path or there's just something different about them and opening up the system so that they can accomplish great things. It's, it's incredibly motivating to me. I would say in the DEI space, we now have a life of pre and post George Floyd. Um, pre George Floyd, I was, um, what really inspired me was seeing people of color and women have opportunities that they didn't have, wouldn't have had, um, had not been for some of the programs. And have people say, I stayed here at this company uh, because of the, the work and the efforts, the things that you, you know, that we're doing in this space. Post, um, it has been watching leadership and others within the organization move from being non-racist to anti-racist, meaning uh-huh. doing stuff, action, putting, putting forth time and energy to actually help own trying to change some of the systemic issues that we have. And then also for us to see helping um, underrepresented or minority-owned businesses thrive. Brian? Yeah, and and for me, uh, you know, it it really comes down to my passion for sharing stories. That's that's really why I I chose the industry that I'm in to begin with. Um, And this is really the greatest extension of that to share the stories that, um, in my opinion, are the most important to be told. Um, You know, we are in a world now where our words on the internet will live on and on well beyond you know anything in the past oral tradition is now all digital and there's a record of things um and so having the the platform to really share those stories and to connect the dots has been really impactful um on more of a personal level it's been great to have the support of my organization to really uh, be able to build out a team that's attacking these issues head on and and really focusing on how we can be the change that we want to see um, and so, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been great. Um, and it all starts with just creating space and having those honest conversations and realizing that before all else, we are humans and the people that you work with are, um, you know, definitely face different realities. Each and every one of us has a different story and, and learning to open up space and, and really listen is, is super important. Wonderful. Thank you all. This is not going to be the last conversation that CJ has on this topic. We look forward to continuing this path, doing the work and driving positive change forward. So I would just like to say thank you so much to our panelists who were wonderful, who were able to share very openly today. And thank you to the audience. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and are curious to know more about this topic and many others, check us out at junction.cj.com or find CJ Affiliate on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram.